Hello, everyone. Welcome back to You Evolving. I'm Dr. Hogan Shiro, your guide on this journey through the evolution of human nature and a deeper look into our species and how it fits in the natural world. I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about in-groups and out-groups and the impacts on humans. This was kind of spurred along by the anniversary of January 6th, the insurrection at the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., the worst domestic terrorist attack the United States has probably ever, ever experienced. And unfortunately, a potential precursor to the troubles that may lay ahead of us. I, like many other Americans, sat dumbfounded that day watching what people were actually doing at the Capitol and the lack of response that seemed to be happening, the encouragement that was coming from then-President Trump and his family and his supporters, the sheer fact that we had elected officials huddling in corners and behind locked doors, fearful for their lives, and rightfully so. Most of us know what happened that day, or we have some sense of what happened that day. But it's the time since that has really been even more troubling in many ways. And as we passed the anniversary the other day, I thought about putting this podcast out then, but I needed even a little more time. I needed time to absorb that day and then think about what it means moving forward and what the dangers actually are to our democracy. I've seen some who have tried to pass it off recently as if as if that day didn't involve violence, as if people didn't actually die, um, as if people weren't injured, and as if our Constitution was not being attacked. I've heard people try to brush it off as if it were Oh, a group of of angry people blowing off steam because they the election didn't come out the way they wanted. I've heard people claim that it wasn't even supporters of then President Trump and his cronies. They try to claim that it was Antifa actors that were hired, or it was some sort of false flag situation. It wasn't. And I think anyone who can look at the world in a semi-logical way can understand that that wasn't the case. Um, That was an, an attack on our way of life, our, our, our legal way of life, our constitutional, constitutionally prescribed way that we transfer power in this country. And I don't want there to be any kind of ambiguity about that. Make no mistake, if they had been successful, elected officials would have been injured and or killed. And Donald Trump would not have given up power, despite the fact that even Republican reviews of the voting has shown that he lost the election. It was a fair election 
probably the fairest election, national election in our country's history. I don't want to get into the weeds of the election itself. Maybe that maybe I'll do a different episode on that um, later on. But instead, I want to talk about how we even got to a point that some Americans honestly believed that they were being patriotic by attacking the legal system of their own country. And it all really starts with what our brains are evolved to respond to. Now, there are lots of different perspectives on what the human brain has evolved to respond to and how much of it is um, a product of responding to specific pressures and specific triggers. Essentially, how much of our brain is adaptation and how much of our brain is the byproduct of a giant problem-solving organ. Uh, Again, our brains are huge relative to our body size. Um, And those big brains do carry with them all sorts of byproducts. And they do carry with them all sorts of costs. Uh, They're incredibly expensive to, to keep running. They take up a lot of calories. Uh, Most estimates are between a third and a quarter of all the calories that we burn in a given day are dedicated to our brains. Now, because our brains are what allow us to think about that in the first place and contemplate that, I think to a lot of people that may not seem that surprising, but imagine if it were any other organ, if someone were to tell you, oh yeah, your liver takes up a quarter of all the calories that you burn in a given day. Um, That liver better be doing something pretty special. So those big brains, they've evolved to do certain things and they also have a lot of plasticity in them where there's a lot of Um, a lot of leeway around what they've evolved to do. And there's also um, a lot of just kind of open-ended components of, of what your brain can do. But one of the things that is clearly evident when we look at humans across cultures and when we look at our closest living relatives, um, the non-human primates, specifically the apes, but we see this in um, monkeys, both from uh, Asia and Africa and South America, South and Central America. Um, Different species exhibit certain behaviors that humans do as well. And one of those that is a very common behavior for lots of social animals but very common across the primates and really common um, among human societies are in-groups versus out-groups. And in-groups versus out-groups are are just one of the foundational components of human society. An in-group is essentially, I mean, they're almost self-explanatory an in-group is a group of organisms that are insular or semi-closed to, or completely closed to the outside world. Um, They identify with one another more strongly than they do with other animals of the same species that are outside of their group. Our closest living relatives, the bonobos and the chimpanzees, both form in-groups. They have uh, groups that they're, if they're males, groups that they're born into, that they live in their entire lives. If they're females, 
They have groups that they transfer into. They typically become members of that group and stay with that group throughout their adult lives. In humans, we see similar patterns. Um, we have primarily, though there is some flexibility here, primarily males in um, hunter-gatherer groups and even in pastoralist groups, males stay in the group that they're born into. So what we call male phylopatry, what I just mentioned in chimpanzees and bonobos, um, is common in humans. So males stay with the group that they're born into. Females typically transfer between groups. And of course, in humans, we're talking men and women. And we're going to have a lot of, in this discussion, a lot of generalities there and not really get into issues like gender um, and the different types of gender that are present across human cultures and in between human cultures. Again, a topic for another day, um, a very interesting one and one that I plan to get into, um, but not, not what I want to talk about right now. Instead, focusing on these in-groups and out-groups, we see this among um, spider monkeys in South America. We uh, don't see it quite as much among the Asian and African monkey species. They tend to follow a pattern that most mammalian species follow, and that is female phylopatry or, or females staying in the group that they're born into if they're going to stay in a group at all. And um, evolutionarily, this is the one that is kind of a, an easier path to get to. And if you just think of it this way, if a female has an, has a, a, an offspring, a, a, a litter of, of babies or a single offspring, like in most primates, um, when they don't have, you know, when the rare occasion of twins doesn't occur, a single offspring, then that female knows that that is their child. There is no doubt about it. It literally came from them, um, which means that evolutionarily they can be reassured that those are at least part their genes that they're supporting. And so females stay with their mothers, their sisters, their cousins in these related groups. And that's the case in most mammal species. But in the... Atellines, the spider monkeys in South America, and we'll, I may get into them um, briefly uh, because they do show some, some corollaries to chimpanzees that are really interesting. Um, and in the apes, especially the um, what used to be referred to sometimes still is as the great apes. So that includes chimpanzees, bonobos, all the species of gorillas, all the species of orangutan. It doesn't include the gibbons. Uh, the gibbons are, are the smaller, lesser apes. Um, orangutans are the only group there that is not an African species. And in the orangutans and gorillas, males don't stay, males and females both disperse. Um, from their natal groups. However, in gorillas, there's some uh, instances where males stay with their fathers, especially if their father is an aging male. Um, and occasionally they will, brothers will form coalitions uh, or other related males will. And the other phenomenon within gorillas that we see is that males will form bachelor groups while they're where sometimes younger males and older males who have not had a, the ability to attract females at that point um, to join their group, they'll form a bachelor group and travel and uh, exist for a while as a, as a bachelor group. In orangutans, uh, males and females disperse. Males, um, females tend to not disperse very far. So uh, in in the orangutans, we don't see female or male phylopatry, but we see 
females with these kind of overlapping ranges and males when they get big they're really large uh, relative to females and they're very aggressive towards one another and so you'll really only have room for one male uh, within an area of a forest they also eat up so many resources that they simply can't form groups with the way their forests uh, exist today but the interesting one for humans are our closest living relatives, the chimpanzees and bonobos, who both form these male phylopatric groups where males stay in the group they're born into their entire lives. And in chimpanzees, the males really form the foundation of the group. They establish a territory and they patrol that the territorial boundaries on a semi-regular basis and are extremely aggressive to outsiders. Uh, in bonobos, I talked about bonobos in the last podcast. And for those who don't know, bonobos are sometimes called the make love, not war ape um, or the hippie ape. And it's because bonobos deal with their aggression in a very different way than chimpanzees do. Um, they've incorporated sex play into reducing aggression. And uh, there are all sorts of different aspects of bonobos and chimpanzees that are um, kind of nuanced there. Uh, male bonobos are more lightly built than male chimpanzees. They've been referred to in the past sometimes as neotenized or as um, sort of um, their development has been arrested in some ways where they have higher pitched voices. Again, they're not quite as big and heavy um, and they don't form the aggressive coalitions that we see in chimps. Interestingly though, humans do. Uh, human males readily form coalitions and friendships with each other and in hunter gatherer, uh, and other traditional societies, if one um, sex stays stays home, it's the male that stays um, in their natal group or that's phylopatric. And <clears throat> those, uh, those males, they form these, again, these coalitions or bonds with each other. Those develop into deep friendships that can last multiple decades. Um, we also see that in chimpanzees, what we call friendships that can last multiple decades. And part of that is human males, like male chimpanzees, are aggressive to outsiders. And they form a very, um, a very solid, very concrete in-group. And that in-group they work to exclude outsiders and particularly males from the outside. Now what that has kind of transformed into or a byproduct of that in modern human groups is we see many groups that are in groups that don't have any kind of basis in territoriality or group dynamics um, as far as resources go those can all be kind of almost kind of imprinted onto the group mm -hmm. so let me explain what i mean there a little bit um, in those in groups that humans form there may be no basis in ethnicity um, geography, homeland, family, we can, because of our large brains where we can symbolically represent things to one another, we can convince each other that something like the color of your skin or the accent in which you talk or the here's a great one right now we're about to enter the nfl playoffs 
the professional sports team that you support is what identifies you as a member of an in-group. And anyone who isn't a part of that in-group is simply not the same as you. And in most cases, the default is they're not as good as you. I used to joke around when, uh, with my students about sometimes I would ask the uh, question, why is it that the Raiders are so much better than the Knicks? If you know anything about professional sports, you know that the Raiders are a football franchise and the Knicks are a basketball franchise. And I would get these quizzical looks as if, well, you can't compare them. They're completely different sports. And the point there is that people who are Raider fans, they're part of what, what is often these days called Raider Nation, are really dedicated to their team and are willing to stand up for it no matter who you're comparing it to. People who are Knicks fans, though they've had a lot less to cheer about um, <laughs> over the years, Knicks fans are just as dedicated. And the point there is it doesn't matter what sport they're playing. It matters how their fans identify with them. And their fans see them as part of their in-group. This is why fans often refer to team victories as we won the game. Though in reality, the fans had almost nothing to do with it unless they were there cheering in person and the cheering of the stands helped to motivate the team. The fans didn't have anything to do with it. They're not part of the team. They're simply bystanders that are watching, but it's really difficult to get them to believe that they are not part of that group. At the very least, they're part of the fans of that group. And in some ways that can be even, even more um, dangerous when it comes to, oh, the classic, uh, you know, instances of the quote unquote soccer hooligans in Europe fighting or um, occasionally when you have fights break out among fans in, in sporting events. You have tragedies that occur like uh, several years ago when the um, Dodger fans attacked a Giants fan at um, Dodger Stadium after a game and um, put that individual in the hospital. Uh, all of that, all of those instances are simply cases of our group is better than your group. And that combined with maybe frustration of losing a particular game or um, <clears throat> other, other triggers. Well, those in-groups aren't, aren't isolated to sports. They're however we identify ourselves, and we categorize ourselves in these ways all the time. I live in Oregon. I am an Oregonian. And we Oregonians are very proud of being Oregonians. We're, groups of, we're a group of people who can take care of ourselves, but we're always concerned about community. And um, we love the natural world. And that's part of the reason we are in Oregon, is we love the nature around us. Uh, if you're from Portland, Oregon, you're still an Oregonian. You probably still have all of those beliefs, but you also are a Portlander. And so you may see yourself um, as someone who has to, quote unquote, keep it weird. Uh, you know, there are lots of stereotypes that come out of in-groups and out-groups. Some classic anthropological stories of discoveries of in-groups and out-groups. Um, one of the classic ones that I was told as an undergrad and have been on a quest to find the original written version of this. So if anyone does know of it and they want to send me an email or a message through my podcast, 
sending me the reference. That would be great. Um, but there's a story of anthropologists who were in Papua New Guinea and, and they were trying to do a census of groups in Papua New Guinea, get a sense of how many groups there are, maybe a sense of the population if you can. And so they had a plan to travel um, across the island of Papua New Guinea from north to south. And, um, and as they started out, first group that they met, incredibly welcoming, um, very hospitable, took care of them. Uh, you know, they were able through combination of local dialect and their home uh, languages to figure out, uh, get their questions answered and figure out what they needed to, to know. Um, always a, a spokesman for the group that was very helpful and very welcoming. But as they, they were there for a few days, as they got ready to leave, they um, said, well, you know, we have to be on our way. And they were asked by the group, well, where are you headed? And they said, well, we're going to go over that ridge there, headed north and, and see if we can you know, meet with the, the, your neighbors to, to the north. Oh, no, no, you can't go that way. Well, why can't we go that way? Oh, because those people are killers. They will kill you and eat you. They are cannibals and they will kill you and eat you. And this continued across the entire um, expedition. Every single group had warned them. And when they, when they would meet a new group, the group was shocked that they somehow got through the territory of their neighbors without being, without becoming dinner. And the take-home lesson there was every one of these groups had become an in-group and every one of their neighbors are an out-group and they have very limited resources on the, on, um, on the islands of Papua New Guinea. And so they had to defend those and they can't be constantly at war. So they developed reputations as these incredibly fierce, dangerous people to their neighbors. And there probably, I mean, almost certainly were instances where that played out and the neighbors had good reasons to fear them. But I remember the first time I ever heard that story, thinking to myself, this is really similar to what I had at the time only read about with chimpanzees, just without the language and without the names and without the, the symbolic components. Um, Papua New Guineans are also famous for their ritualized warfare where they go through these, these very, very prescribed rituals where people don't actually get killed, um, but they make a really good show of it. Uh, chimpanzees don't really have that, although we'll talk about it in just a second, how they, they have some things that are, that are similar. And then when I went into the field and I saw this firsthand and I was fortunate enough to... Um, do the majority of my studies at a site called Ingogo in Western Uganda, uh, which happens to be the largest community of chimpanzees that's ever been recorded. They're in a relatively intact, mostly natural forest in a national park um, in the center of it. And they're surrounded on all sides by other chimpanzee groups. So you get kind of the most natural conditions for their community that that you could hope to find um and i was fortunate enough to be invited by professor david watts of yale university and professor john matani of the university of michigan both of whom i owe an immense amount of gratitude to for even making it possible for me to study chimpanzees in the wild i spent literally thousands of hours following chimpanzees through the forest, enjoying every minute of it, even when I was breathless, charging up a hill that I didn't think I could get to the top of, following chimps as they were headed to the next fruit tree, 
or running after them, literally sprinting, trying to keep up after they had heard neighbors and they were off to do something a little more aggressive than eat fruit. I consider myself lucky, fortunate, uh, really, to have put in the work, been recognized for that work, um, and had the opportunity to spend time with our closest living relatives in their natural habitat. One of the things I focused on, uh, my study of the development of male behavior, was the development of territorial behavior and how males would bond with each other and reinforce those bonds through their territorial actions like boundary patrols. I've been on literally dozens and dozens of boundary patrols at this point and have been with the chimpanzees when they traveled for hours and haven't heard neighbors at all. I've been with them when they have traveled hours and finally found neighbors and been with them when they've traveled minutes and run into neighbors. It all really just depends on whether or not there is a party of other males that are nearby. See, chimpanzees are male bonded and the males reinforce those bonds through multiple behaviors grooming being the primary one they sit around for hours at a time grooming each other essentially cleaning their each other's hair and but they also reinforce those bonds through other things um, support during uh, aggression or altercations within the group backing one another up just simply when they charge and display so charging with each other and as a larger unit when they go on these boundary patrols where they are actively looking for other chimpanzees to engage with. Now, these boundary patrols, when they find other chimpanzees, they can take multiple different forms, and it all depends on the context. Like much of nature, context is critical. One of the forms that they can take, say they find a solitary female or a small group of females with their offspring is that they'll target the nursing offspring and try to get them away from their mothers. And if they are successful, they'll kill those infants in what has been called, uh, what has been labeled infanticide. And chimpanzees are not um, alone in this. Infanticide has been recorded in hundreds of mammals and in, uh, multiple non-mammal vertebrates as well. It's a, a practice that males do to eliminate offspring that aren't possibly theirs. Um, there's, there are different reasons for them doing this. In the case of chimpanzees, the scenario that seems most likely, given the data that we have, is that Males are doing it to drive females from certain areas of the forest. And then they basically annex those areas. So they take over those areas and establish new boundary areas, new territorial boundary areas that they then defend. And so what, what has been observed and uh, the the main study of this was done at Ingogo, but it's been backed up at other sites, is that over decades now we know that those territories can ebb and flow in their size and in their uh, location in some regards, where some areas are used for a while and then they get taken over by another group and, and the chimpanzees who were using those areas no longer go back there, 
or it's dangerous for them too. Uh, I've observed multiple infanticides and uh, never an easy thing to do. But important data that helps us to understand the natural history of chimpanzees and maybe a little bit about violence in our own species. One of the other forms that boundary patrols can take is if they find a mixed group of males and females, and it can turn into a couple of different things. One, it can turn into just basically a shouting match, uh, a non-lethal, non-contact encounter where the chimpanzees from each side will sit and display and shout and um, basically in a show of force without ever having a physical altercation. That can stay like that or it can evolve into an altercation where the two sides see each other, they display towards each other, still they're not physically interacting, they kind of go back and forth in these waves of displays, again trying to essentially scare each other off, um, showing we're stronger than you are. They also can turn into uh, attacks on individual adults, usually targeting males. So if the um, one side determines that they have a really large advantage in numbers, so if they have more than double the number, more than triple the number usually of, of males from the other side, especially if they found a, an individual male or maybe two males that are out on this boundary area, then they'll attack and they attack with lethal force. Um, there have been kills in nearly every chimpanzee community that has been studied for any length of time um, where they've killed individuals from others. Uh, as far as I know, that that isn't the case in West Africa, um, however, they do have these aggressive interactions. So again, we may not we may not just have observed that at this point, but regardless of the case, we know that in many chimpanzee communities, and not ones that have been impacted by humans or the forest degraded. Remember, Ngogo has a relatively um, intact forest for tropical forest today. Chimpanzee males will kill other males if given the opportunity, males from other communities. So this is an extreme form of violence from an in-group versus towards an out-group. The, uh, <clears throat> the most spectacular, the most gruesome, I think, is, is when they kill another adult. The most spectacular, in my mind at least, is when they get into what, what we've called battles, where you have multiple males from each community who are engaging in physical conflict, and it is just bedlam. You, it's really hard to keep track of what's going on in those instances. Um, I've got video of, of quite a bit of it. Maybe I'll do some links to a YouTube um, video later on. But in those cases, that's where the numbers are relatively even, um, but there have been tensions rising and basically an individual or maybe a group go in and decide that they're going to get in a fight. And it usually is two individuals get locked up with each other from opposite sides and then everyone joins in. Um, or most all the chimpanzees join in. It's hard to say everyone because keeping track of all of them um, is, is, like I said, very difficult. So that's what can happen in boundary patrols in these territorial displays by our closest living relatives. 
we don't see this in bonobos and i'll cover that um relatively quickly because we don't have evidence of boundary patrols we don't have evidence of uh lethal intercommunity aggression we don't have um really strong evidence of male bonding and i think those three things kind of in chimpanzees work together to make a, a deadly combination. Males are willing to kill. Um, they bond together where they have a strength in numbers. And then they have these um, really strong boundary patrols. In some bonobo communities that have been studied, individuals from different communities will, will come together at foraging sites and forage together with minimal aggression, if any at all. In other communities, we see that males are not, um, they're not friendly towards their neighbors, but they don't engage in anything close to what chimpanzees do. So uh, I wanna be very clear that chimpanzees and bonobos are both their closest living relatives. Um, they have, they're equidistant from us evolutionarily. And so we can't take one over the other um, what I'm doing here is just talking about how similar that chimpanzee behavior is at its base. So again, stripping away all of the language and symbolism and everything else, um, some of the stuff that, that a lot of my colleagues would, would find to be kind of the most interesting things they want to focus on. For me, I want to focus on the, um, the primal behaviors that we see and kind of that base behavior of bonded males that are defending an area against outsiders and are willing to kill those outsiders if, necess if necessary um, <clears throat> or if the opportunity arises. Like I said, I've seen this dozens of times in chimpanzees, seen um, multiple kills of adults and uh even more of infants so this lethal aggression is something that i've observed myself firsthand and even if i hadn't the reports on it are very clear and again have been observed in multiple sites this is a natural behavior for chimpanzees to to um <clears throat> perform Unfortunately, it looks like, given the right conditions, it might be a natural behavior in humans as well. And that's what I want to talk about for the, for the remainder of the time here, is how easy it is for humans who have identified another group of humans as outsiders as the out group how easy it is for them to become lethally violent towards those individuals how willing they are to dehumanize them and engage in lethal lethal uh, conflict with them a uh, good friend of mine, David Livingstone Smith, has written several books on this topic. Um, he's really become, in my opinion, one of the experts in the world on dehumanization and how readily groups are to do that and how, how frequent it has happened throughout history. Not, not the lightest of topics, but um, an important one and a critical one at this time for us to think about in light of what we saw on January 6th. Those individuals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th were part of a very distinct in-group. They were part of a cult, what I and others have called Cult 45. 
And as part of that cult, they had identified everyone who did not view the outcome of the election, the uh, standing of Donald Trump, or any other political or social issue in America, anyone who viewed it differently from them is part of an outgroup. And worst of all, for them, the elected officials who represent those people, so in this case, the Democratic officials and the few Republicans, including former Vice President Mike Pence, who were going along with the legal election, they saw them as the outsiders and a group to be attacked. And by all accounts, at this point, statements from individuals who have been arrested, and some of them charged already, and some of them tried and convicted, we know that they were meaning to do extreme bodily harm. They were willing to kill elected officials. If they're willing to kill elected leaders who are symbols of the thing that they stand against, how do they feel about the rest of us? How do they feel about anyone who doesn't believe the way that they do? Are they willing to take up arms? Are they willing to engage in lethal violence? It's a question I've asked myself multiple times because this is a topic that I feel is necessary to cover, yet it's one that I've had family members ask me, why are you taking on such a dangerous topic? You could talk about other things. And it's a topic that's so important to me because it just gets at a to- uh, an area that I've been researching for years, but it also, as importantly, or more importantly, really, to me, because of our propensity for forming in-groups and out-groups and our willingness to dehumanize those members of out-groups or to at least think of them as others that are very dangerous to our way of life, That is what has gotten us into trouble in our current system where our very government is threatened now. This group, this cult is willing to destroy this grand experiment of representative democracy, our republic, because they don't agree with the outcome of an election. They don't agree with the majority of the country in the direction we want the country to go. They're willing to completely ignore and put aside our rule of law and the very thing that holds our nation together as a country in essence because they think the outsiders are taking their livelihood from them and destroying their way of life this has become such an important topic that um, i am currently in the process of finishing up a book on the topic a book on the dangers of this cult and what we as a society need to do if we're going to survive. Now, I'm not going to go into those steps of what we need to do now, um, quite frankly, because I want you to buy the book, but also uh, because that's a topic for another day. This has gone on nearly an hour. Um, What I want to do is I want to make it very clear that What happened on January 6th was the result of 
a charismatic leader tapping into primal behaviors that we all share, becoming part of a group, identifying that group as either the most important thing in your life or close to it. Now you are part of an in-group and identifying an out-group and directing your aggressive tendencies, any of your angst, any of your aggression. Let me say not your aggressive tendencies because not everyone has tendencies to be aggressive, but all of your angst, all of your all of your tension, your stress to that out-group, they are the cause of it. Um, and in this case, they see that out-group as threatening their way of life. And there are very few things that are as provoking as that threat. So as I get closer to the finishing of the book, um, maybe I'll do some question and answer, and um, we'll talk a little bit about what we can do to make sure that we don't go down that very, very dangerous path. But in the meantime, I want to just say this. One thing that we all can do is we all can take time to really consider the lunacy, the idiocy of the people involved and how extreme their actions were and we can all make a commitment to defend the constitution to vote and make sure our voices are heard and to hold our leaders accountable for representing us fairly but also respecting that those leaders were elected. With that, um, I'm going to sign off for today. I thank everyone who listens. Again, you can reach me through my website at youevolving.com. That's Y-O-U hyphen or dash evolving.com. You can also email me Hogan at youevolving.com. And you can reach me um, through feedback through this this web uh, this podcast. So I thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great now we're creeping up on the Super Bowl. Great Super Bowl weekend if you're a football fan. A great weekend if you're not. Um, and yeah, see you next time on you evolving.